Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1975 classic thriller, Jaws. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Okay, everyone, take a deep breath. We have arrived at the episode that many of you have been anticipating since the beginning. We're talking about Jaws, people. It's the score that kicked off the golden age for John Williams, an era that will last until about 1993, though that may be up for debate. Each of the 40 episodes before this have given us an insight into the man who created this landmark score and how he grew as a composer to have the capacity to create what has become one of the most famous film compositions in history. This is a very important score, and I couldn't handle discussing it alone. So joining me on this episode is Jeff Owens. Jeff, it is a pleasure to co-host the show with you today. Thanks for having me. Tell the listeners about your musical background. Sure. I come from a family of classically trained musicians. My father is a tenor who studied opera, and my mother studied piano, violin, voice, and composition. I'll give you an idea, Jeff, of what my family life was like. If I was being lazy on a Saturday morning and not getting out of bed as my mom had asked earlier, she would go to the piano and play and then she would just leave the piano. There was just silence. I would try to stay there in my room, but I just couldn't. I just had to get up, go to the piano, and complete that scale. Oh yes, I completely understand the torture. So you seem to be on a path to be a musician. Definitely. I started out studying the oboe, actually, before switching my focus to the piano. My undergraduate and master's degrees are in piano performance and pedagogy, and I studied electronic music, too. Later, I taught piano at college and had a private piano and MIDI studio. And what led you to be a fan of John Williams's music? Your listeners may have already guessed at the answer. Of course, it's the movie Jaws. I was just 11 years old when I saw the movie in 1975. We were visiting my grandparents in Switzerland at that time. So when we saw the movie, it was dubbed into French. The music was so intense and yet thrilling as well. And I think that's a testament to the music. Even when the dialogue is in a foreign language, the music for this carried the film for you. And it was a long road from concept to putting the film on that screen in Switzerland. Steven Spielberg had to plead with producers Dick Zanuck and David Brown to give him the chance to direct this film. And John Williams was only marginally aware of what Spielberg's next project was. He was so busy in the summer of 1974 when Jaws was filming in Martha's Vineyard. He was finishing the score to Earthquake in late summer 1974 and going directly into his next assignment, The Towering Inferno. So, when it was time for Williams to sit down and watch an edit of Jaws, he had just wrapped up recording the score to Clint Eastwood's mountain climbing thriller, The Iger Sanction, in February 1975. Just a few weeks later, Williams was sitting in the screening room at Universal Pictures, watching the film by Steven Spielberg, 
who had made a name for himself with the modest hit The Sugarland Express in 1974. And the thing that was really unusual about Williams' viewing of Jaws was that Spielberg was not in attendance. He was in Japan at the time. So Williams was on his own when it came time to spot the scenes that needed music. According to an interview Williams gave in 2012, Williams said, quote, I came out of the screening so excited. I had been working for nearly 25 years in Hollywood, but had never had an opportunity to do a film that was absolutely brilliant. Jaws just floored me, end quote. And so he went to his office on the Universal lot to figure out how he would create a score that can match his excitement. I just can't imagine how Jaws floored John Williams without music, to be honest. As we all know, the filming of the movie nearly sank Spielberg's career as he went over budget and over schedule. And we've seen how silly the rubber shark looks in some of the shots. But it's the music that really makes this movie work, and Spielberg has always said so. But that's what the best film composers can do. They see greatness in a rough cut. I've always felt that film scoring is essentially, if one thinks about it, the art of manipulation. Composers are similar to computer programmers because they use musical grammar to code into their scores exactly how they want us to feel. John Williams wanted us to feel the tension of this predator on the town of Amity and does so, well, with pretty much just two notes. It's amazing how effective those two notes are. Of course, the shower scene in Psycho with the strings playing in the highest note of E possible freaks us out with just that one note. It's amazing how something so simple can be so terrifying, and John Williams talked about that in a recent interview. I, I too struggle greatly with the simplest things because I, you know, if you, if you want to get a tune that is shaped in six measures or seven notes or, or right. whatever that can right. be expanded and extended or not, something that may seem simple or or simply diatonic, which is to say scale wise, right. or that, uh, can be very very difficult. Uh, Deliberate obfuscation and complexity is not hard to lather, or rather layer onto, onto a musical structure. To peel things away and say exactly what you mean, and the fewest words you can right. put together without being oversimplistic or without being banal or without being whatever the, the detriments and the dangers of simplicity may introduce. Mm. Uh, that's the hardest part of the job, the melodic part of it. That, yeah. seemed, that seems the easiest. In my teaching, I often use the main title cue from Jaws to demonstrate how energy and tension can be created in music. Tension, in the musical sense, means the listener may feel a sense of unrest, instability, or even excitement. The listener is curious as to what might come next. Let's listen to the opening cue from the movie, and then we'll talk about the techniques John Williams used in these 54 seconds to create tension.
Williams chose two main notes to depict the shark swimming, an E and F, which form an interval of a minor second. That means they are right next to one another on a piano. When played consecutively, or together, they clash, creating a lot of energy and tension. He then adds syncopated low D notes to create more tension. The tuba breaks the repetition with an ascending dominant seventh broken chord in the higher part of its range. It then repeats the figure again the second time up a step before descending back down. The rest of the strings repeat the two-note bass theme as the winds join the tuba in its broken chord. Finally, the full brass comes in with the two-note theme as the whole orchestra crescendos to a loud climax with flute and piccolo bursts. When Tommy Johnson, the principal tubist on Jaws, asked Williams why he didn't use the French horn instead, which would have been easier to play in that register, Williams replied, quote, I wanted it to sound a little more threatening, end quote. Well, he certainly succeeded with that. So I have a question for you, Jeff, that I have always wanted someone to answer. Do you think there are two successive notes in the octave that would have worked just as well as E and F for this theme? Great question. In my opinion, no. I don't think other notes would have worked as well. Williams picked the perfect two for the shark. On a standard four-string double bass used in most orchestras, its lowest note is an E, and one of the core techniques composers use to create tension and energy in music is to use the extreme ranges of instruments. You mentioned earlier how Bernard Herrmann used the high register of the violins in Psycho to create that shrieking, almost screaming effect to create tension in the shower scene. Williams went in the complete opposite direction for the shark in Jaws, utilizing the lower register of the orchestra. And the lowest note in the string section is the low E of a double bass. So it would seem that while he was working out this theme, he already knew he wanted to use the double bass. Interesting. Most composers let their orchestrators handle that problem of putting the skeleton score into the right instruments, but not John Williams. So... We have the two notes that really encapsulates, encapsulates the mindset of the shark. It's one thing to think of two notes that could perfectly embody the character of the shark, but there are musical techniques that really lifted this music and made the score the icon it is today. There are six techniques I want to mention. The ostinato, the harmony, the tempo, dynamics, syncopation, and orchestration. Every single one of these techniques is on display in the main title sequence, and as the movie progresses, Williams has the opportunity to show that a great composer doesn't just rely on the notes, but uses music theory and the talents of his orchestra to really make a musical statement. So let's dive into the details of how Williams uses compositional techniques to create tension so effectively at the very beginning of the movie. I hope I can convince you of just how brilliant this seemingly simple opening to the movie really is. The piece starts out very quietly, 
but in an interesting way. Williams gives us the following pattern. One note played slowly, then a long rest or pause. Two notes, and then another pause. Three notes, and another pause. And finally, four notes are played in a row. Each time the basses, cellos, and bassoons play the low note F, William has them really lean into it with the crescendo. This soft E to loud F pattern he creates emphasizes how much tension there is between these two dissonant notes. Psychologically, the listener is already wondering what the heck is going on. He then gives us a full two measures of the soft E to loud F with no pauses, played very deliberately in quarter notes. Then he finally breaks into the faster eighth note ostinato pattern we all recognize. The E to F pattern is now played twice as fast by the strings and slowly gets louder. The piano joins in to bang out a sudden syncopated low D note. The basses play the pattern up an octave now so they can also play the D. We have barely begun the piece, and Williams has already used all six of the compositional techniques I mentioned earlier. We have the ostinato repeating pattern of two notes, the clashing dissonant harmony of the E to F, the slow beginning tempo that increases to twice as fast. The dynamics Williams indicates at the beginning of the piece are at the extreme range of soft, marked with three letter P's. If you see one letter P in music, it is an abbreviation of the Italian word piano, which means to play soft. Two letter P's together is pianissimo, which means to play very soft. Williams has the basses, cellos, and bassoons play with three P's, pianissimo, which means play very, very soft. Next, we have the syncopated accented low D notes to add even more tension, and lastly, Williams' orchestration uses the extreme low register of the strings and woodwinds. Talk about genius! No wonder no one wanted to get into the water after this movie. Now you know why the movie is so musically intense. He programmed it that way, very deliberately. In addition, Williams had to time the opening music to the credit sequence. For instance, the fast ostinato begins when the film cuts to the point of view of being under the water. The driving ostinato continues to build until the tuba enters, exactly when the title Jaws appears in big white capital letters in the film. More and more sections of the orchestra are added to play the two-note ostinato pattern as the music builds to a huge crescendo with flute and piccolo flourishes. that exact moment, the movie begins as it cuts to a young adult playing the harmonica. What an amazing opening credits. 
simple yet direct and packing a punch. All of that is accomplished in about one minute of music from John Williams. The goal of those 54 seconds of music, Jeff, I think was to create goosebumps. And he certainly has done that. I mean, I'm kind of getting them right now. When I go to concerts featuring John Williams music, this is always on the program. And people start laughing when they hear it. I think it's nervous laughter because of the responses from their brains thinking of this terrifying shark. Of course, in a concert hall, everyone is safe, but I think they realize how much music can instantly tell you how to feel. Now, if you'll allow me, Jeff, I want to tell the listeners a story about Jerry Goldsmith, the great composer. I have searched the internet endlessly to find the source of this story, but I have been unable to find it. But I do remember reading this somewhere about 10 years ago. So Jaws premiered in June 1975, just one month after the film The Wind and the Lion, featuring a score by Jerry Goldsmith. The score to that film is very good and is one of Goldsmith's best. After watching the first minute of Jaws and hearing the music that Williams wrote for the opening credits, Goldsmith turned to his wife and said, quote, I guess I'm not winning the Oscar this year. So Goldsmith knew what a masterclass of writing this was and gave it proper credit, well, in his own way. But the impact of this theme for the shark continued well beyond the opening credits, and it segues into the first moment of underscore about two minutes later. That music is played when the first victim, Chrissy, gets attacked. The underscore is being played as we watch Chrissy swim from the shark's point of view. She is freestyling quickly across the top of the water while we get a long, sustained D-flat pedal tone note in the bass, while the harp and vibraphone play quick ascending arpeggios from the bottom to the top of their register. The vibraphone flourish really resonates for a long period of time, giving off an ethereal quality to the passage. Then Williams takes his two-note shark theme and plays it like a heartbeat, two quick notes with the rest and then another quick two notes. That is definitely one of my favorite parts to this cue. I especially like the way Williams combines two different textures. We have the low pedal tone and two note ostinato of the shark against the higher floating notes of harp and vibraphone of above, representing the swimmer. We really start to get nervous for Chrissy as we see the shark swimming right underneath her when we get a sudden loud burst of high screeching violins playing an incredible dissonant chord. The shark has taken hold of Chrissy and the orchestra breaks loose. The violins break into a fast sequence of atonal ascending and descending scales with the bass drum banging and the brass interjecting with syncopated flares.
Another high-pitched chord from the violins sets the shark moving at high speed as the two-note theme is played extremely quickly. Xylophone and string flourishes are suddenly stopped as the vibraphone completely stops the hectic speed to a slow quarter-note pace. Chrissy has managed to hold on to the buoy. The tuba enters with that ascending seventh arpeggio as the two-note heartbeats effect plays underneath and the shark begins to take Chrissy through the water at high speed as the ostinato begins at a fast clip. The strings play in a syncopated manner using dissonant chords in their high register as the bass drum adds its own syncopated beats. The trumpet starts playing in their high register as the music climaxes and this is where the music ends in the movie. But the cue continues and then suddenly drops to a lone harp playing arpeggios. I think it's a good choice to stop the music when Chrissy goes under, because it gives the audience a chance to catch their breath. Even quiet plucking on the harp might have seen too much. All we get are the crashing waves on the beach to contrast the cacophony we just experienced. Perfect choice by Williams and Spielberg, and the sound mixers as well who would win an Oscar for their work. The music continues with the cellos and basses playing low, steady, and slowly descending notes as the violins add dissonant intervals above. This underscores the moment when Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, discovers Chrissy's uneaten remains. The cue ends with one of my favorite descending scales Williams has written. Let's talk about another moment in the film where Williams puts all of those musical techniques to work and really gets us freaked out. It's the second human death in the movie, which comes a, during a day on the beach when Brody is already freaked out by the possibility of a shark in the water. After a few fake-outs by Spielberg showing an obese woman going into the water and a screaming girl who is boosted onto the shoulders by her boyfriend, we see the underwater point of view of the shark as he goes on the hunt. And he sees the yellow raft with Alex Kittner on it. Jeff, I'm just getting chills thinking about this music. It's my favorite musical moment in the film.
And it makes me smile because it is such a masterclass in composition in a score that has so many of these moments. The basses and cellos are just doing their thing with the E and the F and the hits on the D until the target is spotted, with the harp telling us just that. And then the strings pick up the pace, signaling the shark's heartbeat increasing as lunch is served. And it never fails to get my heart rate up a bit, especially when I am watching the film and the camera takes us closer and closer to the raft. After an unscored five or so seconds as everyone notices Alex thrashing about, the notes come back as the shark scores his victory. Now you could tell me that I'm wrong in this, Jeff, but I think the brass was used in Alex's final moments because brass tends to signal victory, and in this case, the shark wins. And of course, there's that run on the strings in the high register as we see the famous dolly zoom shot of Brody. As far as that scene goes, John Williams could have done very well just to play the E and the F notes slowly, then speed up as we get closer to Alex. And it would have been a very scary scene just with that. But putting in the harp and the clarinet to put some color into the music really sells it for me. This scene in the film is so good. Just like you mentioned, Spielberg visually creates tension before the music even begins. People keep blocking Brody as he keeps trying to see past them to the water. The kid looking for his missing dog while Brody's son sing, Do you know the Muffin Man? while building his little sandcastle? Talk about a handoff! You can see why Williams was so excited when he saw that first cut of the film. I think you are right about the brass, too. The shark wins, and the brass signal his victory. I think both Stephen and John's choice not to have any music afterward is perfect. You see Alex's mom calling for him. She is isolated by herself, close to the shore, with everyone else pulled back with their loved ones. The only thing you hear is the roar of the surf as the bloody raft floats in. Just like the moments after Chrissy dies. Again, it's a great choice to keep the movie moving, show the blood in the water, and also give us a chance to catch our breath before moving on. And this movie really does move. There's never a dull scene. But the best scene comes when Brody teams up with the kooky ship captain Quint and shark hunter Matt Hooper to find the shark on the ocean. They are trying to bait the shark after a long day, and tensions on the boat are a bit high. One of the most iconic moments in film. 
Brody is complaining about having to chum the water and is talking to Hooper and Quint without watching what he is doing. He turns to throw out some more chum and we hear the brass play a stinger as a huge shark comes out of the water right at him. The violins play a descending tremolo as cellos play a slow scary melody and the basses play a low chromatic descending scale as Brody backs into their quarters to tell Quint he's going to need a bigger boat. later in the cue interweaves the sea shanty melody and the French horns and strings with the shark fugue played in the trumpets. He continues to use dissonant intervals and extreme ranges for the shark and tonal elements for the men alternating between minor scary keys and major heroic ones. As the shark approaches again and Quint gets ready to shoot at it, Williams uses the two-note motive in a descending pattern, 
the exact opposite of the heartbeat treatment he had used earlier. As the shark gets hit with the first barrel, we get Williams in full-blown heroic style, soaring strings with the brass belting out the sea shanty tune as the men race after the shark and the orca. The cue ends as the shark takes the buoy underwater as the low, ominous strings play against a steadily lowering sea shanty melody as Williams combines the themes with no winner after man and beast finally meet. We just played what is probably my third favorite musical moment in the film, after the main titles and Alex's death. Playing the shark theme in reverse, F and then E, like this. Yes, that always freaks me out, and I think it creates the biggest tension in the movie. We see the shark fin approaching the boat, and you wonder if they will actually hook the shark. And then perfect syncing to the film with the brass fanfare as the barrel hits the water. This cue encompasses everything that made John Williams a good composer in the 40 films before this, and will make him the undisputed best for the next 45 years. I couldn't agree more. Alfred Hitchcock talked about the things that are unseen creating the most tension in a film. 
Now, perhaps it was because of all the mishaps with the mechanical shark, but Spielberg made the choice to keep us from seeing the shark too much in the film. Actually, the first time we see it is 62 minutes into the movie. Before that, there's a very nail-biting scene involving the shark, and we never see it, not even its fin. It comes when two fishermen are baiting the shark with a roast in an attempt to get the $3,000 reward. The shark takes the bait and pulls the roast out to sea, not caring that the roast is attached to a chain attached to the pier. John Williams's theme for the shark is in full effect through the entire scene, never letting up when the pier breaks and one of the men falls into the water. Now, here's the point where my stomach always gets into knots. We see the broken part of the pier turn around slowly with a weird creaking noise added in for extra effect, and then head back to the shore. It's kind of like the moment in horror movies when Jason or Freddy or whomever hears a creak in the house and turns around to hunt his victim. And John Williams goes into full horror movie mode here, turning up the dynamics for the string section. Instead of playing pianissimo, they are playing fortissimo, really strong, telling us that something really bad is about to happen. Spielberg and Williams get the last laugh as it's all a fake-out. The shark didn't go back to the shore. In the final film version, there's a brief insert where you only hear the strings play the shark theme instead of the lifting passage on the horns as Charlie tries to get back onto dry land. It seems like Williams and Spielberg thought the cue as it sounded was too over the top. But interestingly, Williams kept that shark theme going all the way to the end as the broken pier crashes onto the shore. I guess it's because he wants us to know that the shark threat is still there. Exactly. I'm so glad, Jeff, that you mentioned how it is often the things we can't see that are the scariest. There's another great moment in the film, 
where Spielberg and Williams take advantage of that fact. It's when Hooper is lowered into the cage and is adjusting his goggles. Williams begins the two-note ostinato theme as Hooper sees the shark swimming directly towards him. Spielberg then cuts to the surface as Brody and Quint see the three barrels fast approaching. Everybody is now thinking, here comes the shark. And then, just as quickly, the music fades as the shark swims away. We are all left wondering, where did it go? And more importantly, when is it coming back? from a scuba tank are audible. Spielberg alternates between close-ups of Hooper's face and the emptiness he sees under the water. He then removes the cork from his spear that contains the poison. Suddenly we see the shark coming right at him from behind. There is still no sound until he rams the cage with full force. We are just 40 seconds into the queue when Williams gives us this fantastic atonal section. He starts with a short ascending scale burst in the low piano and basses, answered by the cellos in their middle register, and then finally a high, clashing, dissonant minor second in the violins before they quickly descend in the opposite direction. We then get more of the violins playing that piercing high minor second as the low basses rumble underneath. Williams later has the strings perform a musical call and answer, bowing their instruments with the very fast spiccato. We get a short break with the violins playing the high dissonant minor second before a new cello pattern begins. It is an ascending pattern that repeats again and again. As listeners, we feel two big rhythmic pulses that are much like the earlier heartbeat Williams gave us previously in the score. Williams adds syncopated dissonant intervals in the rest of the strings as they begin to play flourishes, increasing in volume and speed while also playing in their highest register. Finally, the harp breaks the tension with a series of glissandos going up and down until being interrupted by the strings and brass. The harp glissandos continue as the strings play short, syncopated, dissonant intervals until the trumpets and French horns play a descending pattern and the shark ostinato begins at a quick pace. It stops abruptly as the clarinet plays a haunting melody over the tense notes of the strings.
Jeff, I think your analysis of the music in that last part of the scene is fascinating. I thought I knew the music to that scene backwards and forwards, but you made me realize that I was not paying attention to the cellos playing that repeating ascending pattern throughout the entire attack. I was so focused on the strings playing the high notes and the harp flourishes as well. Those notes played on the cello kind of dig deep into you once you notice it. So for those of you who also may not have noticed that cello pattern playing over and over, I'm going to play this for you again. You'll hear that pattern playing pretty much uninterrupted at the start, and then it keeps going as the rest of the orchestra comes in. It really does kind of create a pulse throughout the entire scene. The shark ramming into the cage from behind is probably the scariest moment in the movie, particularly because of that silence before it, Jeff. I bet in a lot of theaters in 1975, people were holding their breath as well, afraid to breathe and be caught off guard when the shark appeared again. It's another wonderful decision by Spielberg and Williams to keep the silence and not have what probably would have been the easy way out, have quietly tense music playing as we wake for the shark's reappearance. So we've just explored how two simple notes can do so much for a film score. And I'm sure it was no easy task for John Williams to compose this score, even though we mere mortals probably think it was. We have all heard Spielberg mention numerous times how the music saved the movie, and I really, really hope John Williams got a nice bonus when the receipts came in for Jaws. The movie was the first to make more than $100 million in its initial release in North America, the Godfather, the previous box office champ, only made $85 million after a re-release in 1973 in anticipation of the release of The Godfather Part II. I can't imagine there's a person in the world over the age of probably 18 who doesn't know at least the famous melody from the score, even if they have never seen the movie. It's that ingrained into our society. So Jeff, was there a film score that was written before Jaws that had the same kind of impact in mainstream society? That's a great question, Jeff, especially thinking about it in terms of mainstream society. Not that many. I think you might have to go all the way back to the 1930s and Max Steiner's Gone with the Wind. Certainly a lot of people were acquainted with it, as well as Lawrence of Arabia. There was a similar reaction to the music in Psycho, and we must remember that The Godfather came out before Jaws in 1972. Other groundbreaking scores to musicians and soundtrack aficionados like Planet of the Apes just were not as appreciated by mainstream audiences because the music was so dissonant. There was not much of a tune to hum when you left the theater. John Williams has that amazing gift for composing themes we all remember. It's kind of like Mozart and Salieri from the movie Amadeus. The priest listening to Salieri's story in the movie could not remember a Salieri tune, but he instantly knew Mozart's Eine Kleine Nacht music. Yeah, I agree about Psycho. 
even Janet Lee couldn't take a shower after seeing the finished film. As I mentioned earlier, even Jerry Goldsmith knew the score was a shoe-in to win the Oscar for original score. The other nominees were decent. Actually, a couple of them were pretty good, but they were pretty much placeholders. The nominees for the best original dramatic score are... Gerald Freed for Birds Do It, Bees Do It. Alex North for Bite the Bullet. John Williams for Jaws. And Jack Nitzi for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jerry Goldsmith for The Wind and the Lion. And the winner is... John Williams for Jaws. Dick Zanuck and David Brown, thank you both for giving me the opportunity to work with an extraordinary man, Steven Spielberg. The great Universal Orchestra and my friend Herb Spencer, thank you, and all of the members of this academy for giving me this honor. I'm a grateful man. Thank you very much. In addition to winning his first original score Oscar, Williams also got to hold his first Grammy Award, taking the trophy for Best Album of Original Score written for a motion picture or television special. The score also received the British Academy's Award for Best Score and the Golden Globe as well. Williams has said those awards really created a boost for his career. And that's just scratching the surface for the trajectory his career would take for the remainder of the 1970s. Jeff, I can't express enough how I appreciate you joining me on this episode to really dig deep into how this score works its magic and how it practically became timeless even though the film is starting to show its age after 44 years. I have one final question for you. Has John Williams written another film score like Jaws that uses so many of these techniques we discussed in the composition of its main theme? I can't think of another main theme that comes close. But one of the talents he acquired over many years is how to write music that matches what a film needs. I don't think he has had to write a theme that comes close to a great white shark. I bet there have been a few directors who wanted that Jaws feel for their films, though. So, with that, let's close out this episode of The Baton. Jeff, I enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you learned a lot today. Before you go, I hope you will take the time to write a review of this podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can also submit comments on the Podbean app, and as always, send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. I post a new episode every Wednesday, and next week we will dive into 1976 when John Williams wrote music for three films before taking off to a galaxy far, far away. Until then, the baton is down. (laughs) 